have some claims, just stay quiet and you'll be okay. We are turning to the airport. That we can't breathe? I don't know. I think we're getting hijacked. All of this was brought upon us in a single day, and night fell on a different world, a world where freedom itself is under attack. We cannot let this evil continue. We must define the nature and scope of this struggle, or else it will define us. Thanks for listening to episode six of this special series of WarPod, Reckoning with 9-11, with support from Friedrich Ebert Stiftung. Looking back 20 years on at the impacts of 9-11 across the world. Episode five looked at how the war on terror began evolving with more reliance on remote warfare and countering violent extremism programs. This sixth episode, Weaponizing the War on Terror, looks at how authoritarians around the world have manipulated war on terrorism for their own ends. So we've heard in this series how it was hoped that the war on terror unleashed by 9-11 would also advance freedom in the world. But we have also seen how in Afghanistan it only helped warlords and criminals dominate the Afghan state building project. In Iraq, the US helped Maliki cling to power because he was trusted as a war on terror partner. And in Yemen, it supported Ali Abdullah Saleh to benefit by playing a double game and using counter-terror support to face down opponents. We also heard in episode one how the immediate reaction to 9-11 at the UN led to new resolutions and laws that put rebel groups onto terror blacklists and backed states in more uncompromising efforts to combat them. The rise of remote warfare also meant that there was a lot of military and security equipment, as well as money and political support. And all of this was on offer for governments and leaders who claimed to be fighting terrorists. As an example, here is Trump talking about US support for someone he called his favorite dictator, Egyptian President al-Sisi, in the Oval Office in 2019. We are very much behind President al-Sisi. He's done a fantastic job in a very difficult situation. We've never had a better relationship, Egypt and the United States, than we do right now. Last time, we also went into how the rise of countering violent extremism, at the same time as attempting to demilitarize counterterrorism to some extent, also effectively took sides with governments all over the world in the attempt to dissuade people from siding with groups designated as extremists. Now, in this episode, we explore how authoritarians have taken advantage of this international climate of support for war on terror and use this for their own ends. And we ask what effects this has had on peace and democracy outside of Western countries. We're going to start by exploring the case of the Philippines, joining us to discuss how the counterterrorism and countering violent extremism agendas have played out there is Mark Batak, who works for Initiatives for International Dialogue in Manila and who has recently authored a report called An Explosive Cocktail, describing these trends. Mark, in An Explosive Cocktail, you chart how counterterrorism has facilitated the rise of more militarized authoritarian rule in the Philippines. How did this story begin after 2001, at first under the Mahapagal Arroyo administration? From 1986, the Philippines had been in a long transition away from military-backed dictatorship into democracy. And faced with insurgencies and internal violence, there's always been a constant tug of war between, on the one hand, military approach, and on the other, peace processes via political settlement and grassroots peace building. It was under the Makapagal Arroyo administration in 2001 to 2010, as the Philippines became one of the foremost supporters of the global war on terror in the region, that military generals and retired generals started to again accumulate immense influence over the civilian government. And responding to the call of robust counterterrorism measures, um, in the aftermath of 9-11, Washington gave Manila a tenfold increase in military assistance. Then the election of President Rodrigo Duterte in 2016 brought hardline responses to security threats into center stage. Can you explain what happened then? Duterte's presidential campaign was founded on law and order and tough approach. Um, especially the war on drugs and criminality. In five years, estimates of those killed through summer killings or police operations range from 6,000 to over 12,000 deaths. But it, at the start, it 
wasn't necessarily applied on armed conflicts. When it comes to ongoing armed conflicts at the start of the administration, Duterte was very open to political settlement. But in 2017, right around the time when the PCVE, or Preventing and Countering Violent Extremism Agenda, was being introduced in Southeast Asia, the Philippines was first to embrace that agenda. And the military was saw this as an opening, basically, in pushing for the primacy of terrorism as a main or primary lens in analyzing but also addressing a conflict. And this took the form of massive entry of training, studies, resources, popularizing PCV agenda, starting with the military and the bureaucracy. And the PCV agenda became a vehicle for the military to place counterterrorism really back into the uh, agenda. Now, let me be clear, there have been terror attacks in the Philippines. And for us, it's a clear problem. The question here is isn't whether or not terrorism is a serious problem in, for the country. Um, at one point, even an IS-inspired group seized control of a city in southern Philippines, the city of Marawi in 2017. But the question is, if there is a real terror threat, the question is how is this threat handled or whether the response has been proportionate, successful, and uh, sustainable? Sure. So let's go into that question a little bit more. One of the major causes for concern that you note in your report is how the language and rhetoric of counterterrorism is being used by Filipino authorities to legitimize a violent crackdown on political opponents. So tell us a little bit about how that's happened. The criteria used for assessing radicalization includes individuals' political persuasion or persons' political or religious belief um, or education institutions where one studies. Uh, combined with the government efforts to label terrorists, radicals, religious extremists, insurgents, rebels, and separatists as enemies of the state. This has led to many counterterrorism and PCV initiatives targeting student groups and dissenting movements in certain minority groups. For example, under the Manila Police District Memorandum of January 2020, information on Muslim youth and students in the national capital region were being collated for PCV initiatives. On the other hand, with how the current... Um, recently passed Anti-Terrorism Act of 2020 is formulated. A lot of safeguards were removed, and um, there's a huge discretion being given to the executive department composed of many generals to determine who are terrorist um, individuals or groups. So any form of expressions that articulates a view or political affiliation contrary to the official state position or addresses human rights violation can possibly constitute and is, is being framed as a form of terrorist activity, a radicalizing uh, you know, um, propaganda, and constitutes a broad threat to national security. A concrete um, example of this is the Communist Party of the Philippines and the National New People's Army, whom many administrations be before Duterte have been in peace talks, were also designated as terrorists. The representatives to the peace talks of that um, group, the National Democratic Front, have also been designated as terrorists. Thanks, Mark. So just give us a sense how this kind of approach has been impacting on Filipino society. Um, for example, you know, some of the consequences for young people, for minority communities, for political activists. There is definitely a shrinking civic space, but not just shrinking civic space, but an unsafe space for community organizing, for activism, but even for community-based peace processes, community peace building. Uh, with the Communist Party and the New People's Army designated as terrorists, anyone who is thought to be sympathizers of the communists, which means human rights organizations, trade unions, uh, students' organizations, anyone engaging with the communists in, either in bilateral peace talks um, or back channels, there is real harm for them. Massive tagging of progressive organizations and indigenous groups, particularly youth groups, are being seen in many of our partner communities. Um, con and in particular, consultants of uh, the uh, National Democratic Front have also been either detained or worse, extrajudicially killed in the past several months. But secondly, there's also a trend of forgetting the principles of do no harm and proportionality in how governments address um, conflict that leads to further 
marginalization and massive grievance among minoritized. Uh, for example, in 2017, when the IS-inspired group took control of uh, Marawi City in southern Philippines, what the military did was to carpet bomb the entire city without regard to the symbolic political and cultural value of the city. And more than four years until now, after its brutal destruction, many of the residents remain displaced. But the attention seems to be preventing those groups from becoming terrorists rather than ensuring that those displaced people could be allowed to return to the city. And this connects quite well to this idea that your work and and this report of yours points quite a lot to how labeling grievances or difficulties in the country as being driven by extremism is getting in the way, is blocking the attempts to resolve conflict peacefully in the country. In our country where we have a long history of internal violent conflict, the push to treat political insurgencies as terrorism is closing many spaces for many development organizations and peace-building-based responses. Um, and counterterrorism has been a central factor in the removal of dialogue and ceasefire with insurgent groups. Authorities are securitizing engagement with many communities in the country, tackling perceived threats through hard security narratives, policies, interventions, and partnerships. This is not providing security, but instead driving and enabling rising levels of conflict and repression. Yeah, so it's a sobering situation. Let's add one more layer, because in your report, you discuss the role of the international community, including the US and the UN, in encouraging the Philippines' growing embrace of counterterrorism and countering violent extremism approaches. Sometimes they do this knowingly, sometimes inadvertently. What do you see as the international approach here and the effects it's having in the country? For the strategic partners of the Philippines, some of them are the United States, Japan, Australia. This takes the form of millions of dollars in uh, military aid. And we've seen that in this administration, but we've seen that as well in post 9-11, wherein uh, massive resources were poured into modernizing an infrastructure of the military that led to eventual growing influence of a massive influence of the generals in the civilian government. But for the United Nations and multilateral organizations, um, this takes the form of you know, the push for focus on countering violent extremism approach in a way that empowers, reinforces the military agenda. The military's dominant uh, approach or understanding of a whole-of-society approach to uh, conflict is not based on the recognition or respect of plural approaches of civil society, faith-based groups, communities into a multifaceted nature of conflict, but on the belief that the rest of society should just be mobilized in implementing the military-led strategy. And this matters because the focus of donor funding and policymaking moves away from civil society organizations and women's organizations, away from their vital role in championing community priorities and pushing for reforms, you know, structural uh, reforms, uh, durable solutions. And it moves away from, you know, recognition that communities, women, youth are leaders and agents of peace, and they are not just mere objects to be instrumentalized in any agenda. With all this in mind, Mark, and coming up to an election year in the Philippines, what do you think Friends of the Philippines should consider doing to help address some of the trends that you've described? Uh, many of our partners in multilateral organizations, international organizations, INGOs, first they have to see that it's not uh, that the peace process is not just alive or in the formal processes or in track one um, negotiations. It lives also in grassroots efforts. Many human rights organizations, activists, peace builders community organizers, indigenous peoples in the Philippines continue to work for democracy and human-centered security responses. And to, for us to reverse securitization and militarization in the coming years and to find durable solutions to this conflict, the UN agencies, international NGOs, national CSOs should recognize that, invest that, put those efforts into the center, invest in projects, programs, initiatives that promote human security and reassert democratic norms and opt out of supporting securitized efforts. 
Mark, thank you for these rich insights into how counterterrorism has impacted on peace and democracy in the Philippines. Reckoning with 9-11. Now let's look at another example of these kinds of trends, Egypt. To do this, we spoke to Sharif Mohieldin, who's an expert on security issues in the Middle East and North Africa region, about what is being done in the name of countering terrorism in Egypt. In the wake of the Arab Spring, Egypt's leader Hosni Mubarak was ousted from power, and this led to democratic elections in Egypt's first civilian president, Mohamed Morsi, came to power. As a member of the Muslim Brotherhood, he was a controversial figure for the Egyptian establishment and also for some of Egypt's neighbors. Eventually, in 2013, the defense establishment decided to take back control under the leadership of a new president, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi. But this was amid a lot of unrest and also some ongoing terror threats. Sharif, would it be fair to say that Sisi's claim to legitimacy is that he is strong on what he terms counterterrorism. Well, actually, it was very difficult to understand what's really happening since the day one, because President Sisi, who was back then just a defense minister, in his speeches and in his official talks and speeches, he was just talking about countering terrorism, but Back then, it wasn't uh, that clear to the public and to many who are following because there was no such risk like that. And it, it was, but it was very limited. Some clash or some bombings in Sinai and actually targeting the gas pipeline to Israel and some just kidnapping soldiers, but then releasing them. This was in August 2012, while uh, Morsi was ruling. So it was like some individual cases. But then President CEC uh, announced it, and it's it's part of his legitimacy, that he is against the Muslim Brotherhood. They have announced it as a Muslim Brotherhood as a terrorist group, and this was some escalations. And then uh, we have witnessed how uh, the government, it went in a very harsh crackdown against the Muslim Brotherhood and against all their settings in Cairo, all their protest activities. So it wasn't clear, are we creating a new enemy and are we just using the terrorism and labeling it with Muslim Brotherhood and creating a new enemy just within all this political mess? Or is there a real and genuine terrorist threat? Whatever we are arguing, we have witnessed since 2013 and till 2019, we have witnessed a very huge and outstanding peak of terrorist attacks in all over the country. We have witnessed a trial of assassinating the interior minister. We have witnessed some bombs outside the presidential palace. We have witnessed the terrorists succeeding in assassinating the public prosecutor. And of course, we have witnessed bombing the Russian flight after taking off from Sharm sheikh So, so many events and so many attacks. And that proved, yes, we were having a genuine threat. After all of these years, one of the side effects uh, of the current counter-terrorist policy, it has somehow succeeded on just pausing all this extending and increasing threats. So what were then some of the laws and policies taken in the name of counter-terrorism? Can you make a few examples? Yes, actually, we have witnessed for, for the first time, we have witnessed so many laws targeting and just focusing on the terror threat. So we have witnessed, for example, the law of 2015, and this was like the counter-terrorism law for the year 2015. And we have witnessed so many legislation like uh, the criminal procedures and like we have witnessed also in the terrorist list laws and banning them from travel, freezing their assets. Actually, thousands of Egyptians have been sentenced and have been put on these terrorist laws. And there are so many questions about this because we have like some tendency of arresting so many people 
few of them they can be real terrorists but we are just arresting much much uh, more than the real terrorists so it's kind of collective punishment so this is one of the strategies that has been followed for decades in egypt and of course after the security risk and this terrorist threat unfortunately we have witnessed like a mentality of revenge sweeping through the state officials and particularly the security agencies because we have witnessed in 2013 like bombing some the intelligence headquarters in South Sinai and in North Sinai we have witnessed bombing the Cairo police headquarters in January 2014 so all this attacking and targeting the security officials buildings and people it has escalated also the response from the security agencies with so much cases of extrajudicial killings with so much cases also of disappearance and torturing people some people estimating it with around 40,000 people got arrested in only the, the last three years they have been arrested under terrorism laws and accused with terrorism charges and for sure not all of them uh, are terrorists and i think the government as president cc himself he did some initiatives to release some of the youth behind the bars because they haven't committed anything and actually uh, the recent days has witnessed like a new wave of releasing some activists like Mainur Masri like Isra like so many activists have been released and uh, I wish this will continue as part of fixing the damage that happened while we are all fighting the real terrors obviously apart from the effort to control violent attacks against the security establishment and risk to others from from terror attacks in Egypt this is also having social effects political effects impacts on civil society can you just tell us a little bit more on the impacts this is having on politics and society in Egypt if if you can yes sure actually we used to have like a public sphere in Egypt in 2011 it was like a very rich environment and so many people are talking expressing their opinions starting some initiatives whether it has some political dimensions cultural dimensions and so on unfortunately under the war on terror so many things has been changed either it's some direct change and with some laws banning some stuff and activities or either is it side effect because people are scared and afraid because now we have a new situation where the state is very very strong while the society cannot uh, organize themselves that well because we are having so much legislation and in addition to the legislation the people who are just using the power they can target anyone and it's not clear what they are really targeting the civil society in Egypt has suffered a lot during this war on terror because the current regime has showed what it seems like no mercy policy it was very difficult and harsh because most of the critics they are also a part of this country and they are also just angry with the laws we are having from all these terrorist attacks and threats but they are also angry about and angry with how the state is responding to that it might be that the regime used the war on terror just to make sure it can control the civil society uh, sometimes using the war on terror just to punish whoever criticizing and just arresting activists and arresting people who are just even slightly working on some stuff and activities which is not that conservative and which is not welcomed by the regime under the war on terror no one can talk like before 
So this context is not healthy and this context is not leading to fostering the development. Actually, the regime now is calling uh, under the presidency, they are calling for initiative to cooperate and collaborate with the civil society. And I think that's a good sign, but uh, there are so many things to do to fix the relation with uh, the civil society and to bring them on board is by letting them expressing their opinions, letting them being like equal partners, not just followers to whatever the state is enforcing from policies and so on. Thanks, Sharif. One final question. And given the situation inside Egypt, what are your fears for the future? And um, what are your thoughts on what should be done about them? Oh, yeah, there are so many fears, of course. I'm afraid because the current and the past CT policies in Egypt, it just succeeds to suppress the terrorism threat. And unfortunately, I'm afraid that it comes to the surface again because this is what happens actually with the terrorist attacks in South Sinai in 2004, 2005, all these bombs, and after the state uh, and the Egyptian regime back then, Mubarak regime, they have started a crackdown, arresting hundreds, if not thousands, of Sinai youth. And of course, very, very few of them are real threat, but the majority are innocent. So this radicalization process, while you are just targeting people with widespread level. Actually, this builds up the bad and the negative feelings against the state. I'm so afraid after all of this, now for one year, two years, I think it might come again. And um, I'm hopeful that by fixing the current policies, by releasing the innocent activists and the criticals and letting the space open again, people expressing their opinions, uh, cooperating with the state uh, as NGOs and civil society, but like some equal partners, not followers. I think by doing that, if the regime is really keen into the whole state interest, people's interest, and actually also the regime's interest, I think we can face all these fears and we can make a better better future, hopefully. Yeah, so an attempt to get a fast track to security, but as we've been seeing in other countries on this podcast, not necessarily getting to the roots of the problem. And it sounds like Egypt has a journey to go on in terms of a wider opening up if people have been given greater safety to open up that space for them to enjoy their lives. Thank you so much, Sharif, for those insights. Reckoning with 9-11. Now, we want to look at a country whose problems are perhaps better understood internationally, and this country is Syria. Joining us to understand how the war on terror helped the Syrian regime survive the war and outlast its opponents is Dr. Rim Turkmani, who was originally an astrophysicist, but today is a research fellow working on conflict issues at the London School of Economics. So, Rim, there are echoes in Syria of the story of Egypt. How did things begin around 2011, at the time of the Arab Spring movements across the region? Uh, The public protests that broke in Syria in March 2011 were an expression of widespread frustration and dissatisfaction as a consequence of decades, many decades of oppression, multiple forms of exclusion and marginalization, and the monopolization of all sources of authority, whether wealth, um, power, and also the manipulation of identity politics and deepening the societal cleavages, the process of attempted economic liberation that produced dramatic increase in social and economic inequalities in terms of class, region, uh, where do you come from, in which town you, you come from, and so forth. So the consequences were really squadering of civic liberties, absence of accountability, and outlawing any form of opposition, uh, whether intellectual, political, or civic. So the protests were really overdue against such an illegitimate regime. 
And how did the government react to these uh, protest Fridays, for example? How did the government react to the protests? The first reaction of the regime to the public protest was complete and utter denial. It just cannot accept any form of opposition. It doesn't accept that it uh, uh, committed any wrongdoing. So their main aim was to change the entire narrative. All what happened during the last 10 years to change the narrative from these are legitimate public protests by civic protests uh, asking for rights and freedom to uh, a new narrative that these are terrorists, they just want regime change and they're very violent and they don't have any legitimate claims. So to change this narrative, the regime deployed various tactics. Violence was just one of them using extreme violence against civilians, against protesters, the mass detention combined, of course, with torture. Many people would say would rather die and not be uh, detained and tortured. And also uh, to play on identity politics, Mm -hmm. to turn this into a sectarian narrative and to give the impression that these are people whose grievances are rooted in religion and in a sectarian drive to take over the power and oppress other sects. And of course, they linked all of this to terrorism, tried to portray the protesters as simply terrorists. On top of that, of course, part of the regime strategy was to blame the external operators and to claim that this is a conspiracy, internal and external conspiracy. And many of these protesters, Mm -hmm. they're either too naive or they're traitors who are working with an external state or they're simply terrorists. Yeah, and this this was reflected in the media as well, wasn't it? What, What happened then to the protest movement? As a consequence of this strategy by the regime, the the protest movement was divided and new actors joined in, other actors took a step back. So many people who were in it really just for nonviolent protests, uh, when they saw the turn into violence and when they saw that some protesters were also reacting to violence by using violence, they decided that they didn't sign up for that and they went back home. So we lost a big part of the protest movement, uh, particularly the civic one, the nonviolent one. Uh, so these were either arrested or decided that they just don't want to be part of this new current drifting the whole movement into civil war. Others actually joined in. So as the regime used violence, as some protesters also reacted to the use of violence, as many people watching saw the atrocities, they decided to step in, and particularly from the army. So we saw large movement of defection, many army soldiers watching this, defecting and joining the public movement, or others who are not soldiers, just civilians, taking up arm to defend, initially to defend the protester, defend people, but gradually that developed into really organized militias that sadly engaged in a lot of internal fighting and fighting against the regime and became part of a very complex war that has many layers. Civil war, proxy war, some strands of terrorism. So the regime strategy transformed the movement itself. Thanks, Rim. Could you just tell us maybe a little bit more about the emergence of Islamic State, Daesh and al-Nusra in the context of this sort of fragmenting protest and, and resistance uh, movement and, and the sort of violence that was going on? The regime's reaction to the public protests added to that all the external interventions by arming one party or another. So we had Russia and Iran, for example, stepping in to arm the regime. We had many other actors, regional, international, arming the opposition. All of that led 
to gradually the fragmentation of the country. And in some areas, particularly the contested areas, there was collapse of governance. There was no functioning governance anymore. So there was chaos and there was vacuum for power. There was competition in this area to who takes control. Different opposition armed groups were competing. And in the middle of all of this, there were lots of young people who were completely lost. They don't know where do they belong. They have many grievances. Uh, they don't have a job, no, one, no way to feed their families. And in the middle of all of this comes in the terrorist groups, particularly al-Nusra and ISIS. Those groups did not start in Syria. ISIS, as we all know, have started in Iraq after the collapse of the Iraq state and the army. But they took advantage of this collapse of the state and they stepped in and they tried to reverse that. So this is why ISIS was relatively successful in the beginning, because they went in and they said, we are the state. We're going to present an alternative state. So they came in with a comprehensive package. They restored the governance on all levels. They restored services. They had the police. They had courts. They had an overall ideology where everything fits in it. They had um, their armed groups, of course, and their extreme use of violence. So despite all of this, they actually brought in some form of order with them to these areas where chaos was spread. They were able to offer jobs. They were able to bring security in the streets as long as, of course, you follow their lines. And that is why they were partly successful. Al-Nusra group operated within the opposition-controlled areas, but they didn't try to be the sole actor there. They didn't try to be the state, but they were also linked to Al-Qaeda. And of course, key figures in both groups, not a long time ago, they were in the prisons of the regime. And the regime deliberately released many of the leaders of the terrorist organizations so they can go actually and play this role and make the best out of this chaos and this environment and uh, form terrorist organizations so that would support the regime's narrative that these were not legitimate protests, these were terrorists. Let's go deeper into that because the Assad regime didn't view the likes of ISIS and al-Nusra as enemy number one. It had a different strategy for surviving the threat posed by rebellions and by Western critics. So can you tell us what that strategy was? Internal part of the Assad regime's strategy to survive the threat posed by the protest movement was to change the narrative and from the a movement driven by legitimate demand to a terrorist uh, movement. To, so uh, to do this, they did nurture the rebellions, uh, especially with fundamentalists. So they released uh, some of the extreme figures from prisons. They brutally attacked uh, protests. Uh, they directly targeted civilians. They uh, also violently attacked the areas that were controlled by rebels, including by using very primitive weapons like barrel bombs. You know, they dropped them in these areas. Very simple weapon, 100, 200 people would immediately die. Uh, so all of that really nurtured the extremisms and gave the extremists, who some of them were landing in Syria, coming from all over the world, easily crossing the borders between Syria and Turkey and finding a very fertile ground uh, where they can breach their extreme ideology. They had lots of young people who were looking for a job. They had lots of grievances, lots of lost people, lots of needs. Uh, so that was a very good environment for them to spread their extreme Salafist thoughts. And of course, the Assad regime, its security, had long relationship with some of these terrorist groups, especially when they were in Iraq. So there was a form of regime collusion 
in one way or another, initially to fake terrorist attack, but eventually, you know, the terrorists were carrying attacks them, themselves. No one had to fake it. Of course, the use of sectarian language, sectarian narrative, all help to further drive people against the regime and to use also a sectarian language themselves and to be more ready to hear sectarian preaching of the terrorist groups. When the regime succeeded in doing this, and when in 2014 we had two groups announcing themselves as Al-Qaeda affiliate groups, these are ISIS and Nasra, the regime thought that they actually succeeded, succeeded in changing the narrative and now to appeal to the West. So one main reason they wanted to portray the movement as terrorist movement and to nurture terrorist groups is that they wanted to appeal to the West because they know what terrorism means for the West, for Europe and for the US. And they were trying to sell themselves as partners in the war on terror, that they are also fighting terrorists and other countries particularly European ones in America, should actually pack the regime to fight these quote-unquote terrorists. Of course, there are some terrorists on the ground, but that is not the origin of the crisis in Syria. The origin is illegitimate regime, the presence of which created an environment that is very fertile for extreme organizations to develop. Thanks, Reem. So you have this regime which has orchestrated more fundamentalist elements of this rebellion to come to the fore. And in doing so, it can appeal to its supporters domestically. It can give a pretext for Russia to intervene. It can give a pretext for Iran to intervene and support its cause. So how does this strategy by the regime actually play with international audiences. One thing um, we know is that despite the regime being responsible for actually the vast majority of civilian deaths in the war and using chemical weapons on its own people, there were some people in the West who bought the idea that if it was the regime or the, or the terrorists, Assad should stay in place. So, for example, in 2015, the UK Telegraph publishes an article headlined, Let's Do a Deal, Why We Should Work with Vladimir Putin and Bashar al-Assad in Syria. And it's interesting to note that the author of that article was, in fact, Boris Johnson, today's UK Prime Minister. So Assad did manage to get leverage from the Egypt, this approach internationally, right? The US and its allies, they created this perception that they would back the protesters, especially in the mission to overthrow the regime. And they are going to be there to military support them and military intervene to, uh, to support the overthrowing of the regime. But they actually abandoned them very early on. After the 2013 major chemical weapon uh, attack by the regime, the decision by the West and by the US not to take action, especially after all the red lines, have really supported the narrative of the regime and Iran and Russia, which claimed that in reality, the US and allies were never keen taking action, were actually never keen on overthrowing the regime, despite all their calls for the regime to step down. So the protesters also picked up the message and they thought that they should take action themselves. When ISIS was well established in northeast Syria, then the West came together, formed a coalition, and decided to go on the ground and take action to find terrorism. But sadly, they treated terrorism as a non-state problem as the problem of that particular organization that we have to fight, you know, of ISIS or Nusra or whatsoever, forgetting that terrorism is actually state problem. It is related to the lack of legitimacy of all these ruling Arab 
leaders, including in Iraq, including in Syria. So they did, ignored all the state-related issues, ignored all the grievances, ignored the people's strive for democracy, for stability, which would have created an environment that is very uh, hostile to, to terrorism. They ignored all of this, and they focused on fighting terrorism with military power on the ground and by aerial bombardment. But aerial bombardment actually only leads to further terrorism. Uh, so it took years and years in northeast Syria, and despite all the local partnerships, to actually combat ISIS. But despite all of this, there is a big threat of ISIS comeback, particularly because the way that coalition against ISIS have dealt with this problem as a non-state related problems. But while all these American and Western forces were present in Syria, in the northeast of Syria, the regime was at the same time dropping barrel bombs in nearby Aleppo on civilians using helicopters. There isn't one even incidents of any American or European forces or flights even trying to interrupt one of these helicopters, you know, from dropping the barrel bombs. Uh, so there's complete inaction on the acts of very illegitimate regime, but very strong action against a small group that was actually making the best out of this very chaotic and complex environment and making the best out of the regime not being well addressed. So, Rim, you have painted a very grim picture, obviously. Um, and we know that in spite of all the abuses and everything that has happened in Syria in the past years, Assad remains in power. What is the situation now in the country, in different areas of Syria in particular? When I ask people, how is the situation now in 2021, 10 years after the beginning of the protests and five years after the climax of the violence in Syria, they say it's slow death. They say that actually during the days when there was violence, life was even better because the standard of living overall was not very good, but kind of acceptable. But they knew that there's a risk if they leave their home, they may die. But for the rest of the day, they're okay. Right now, the economy have collapsed. The regime is completely isolated. There are strong economic sanctions, blanket sanctions, almost over every institution in the country. There is the collapse of nearby Lebanon. All of this leads to extremely difficult economic situation that the people are suffering from. There is hardly any electricity, any fuel, very little food. And when there is food, people can't afford to buy it. So you have people who used to be upper middle class. Now they cannot afford to put food on the table for their children for dinner. So that daily suffering, people describe as the most difficult they, they ever lived throughout the whole war. There isn't much hope. People don't see hope. They look at the external actions and policies. They don't see anyone uh, bringing any hope. The international community still treating what happened in Syria as if it's a humanitarian disaster. So they are providing aid. They're tackling the refugee issue. And they're not really addressing the deeply rooted issues, particularly the illegitimacy of the ruling regime. They don't see any hope for the economy to recover. So it remains a slow death, I'm afraid, for most people with very little hope. It's incredible when you reflect on this, that after the war having reached a point where Assad's departure looked all but certain by presenting himself as a less bad alternative, this strategy seems to have paid off. He remains in power today, despite all his abuses and, and the conditions which created ISIS still being in place with, with no justice uh, in sight for serious people. I, I think it's really a very tragic story. While the Assad regime partially survived by presenting itself as the less evil 
alternative, I think a major issue was actually portraying the whole crisis as a regime change one, that it had to be either this regime or another one, as in like regime change. So it's either him in power or the opposition in power. It shouldn't have been like this. Uh, I think from the outset, the public movement, despite its deeply rooted grievances, did not have the potential to completely overthrow the regime. I think the focus should have been on what did the regime actually mean, you know, to focus on its abuses of human rights, on the use of violence, on the arrests, uh, on the corruption, focus on the actual issue, the substantive issues, rather than keep focusing on the regime itself. Because for this regime, and it's not alone, all these dictators, for them, the priority is to stay in power. They'll do whatever to stay in power, even if that means destroying the country, even if that means portraying their own people as terrorists. I think from the outset, the West should not have portrayed this as a regime change. They should not asked for the regimes changed as in this person stepping down, other opposition coming in, they should have focused on this substance. Because what happened now, we had an opposition that is not much better than the regime. And the regime, therefore, was able to win this narrative that it is the better alternative. Reem Turkmani, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Reckoning with 9-11. So in this episode, we zoomed in on places like Egypt, Syria, and the Philippines, and we were able to see how making the war on terror eclipse all other priorities ended up handing loads of advantages to authoritarian states. Yeah, exactly. So although the war on terror was launched in the name of defending freedom, as we heard in episode one, if we zoom out from these three countries and look at wider trends in the world since 2001. We can see democracy has been in retreat and both authoritarian rule and instability have been growing a lot since the war on terror began. In 2010, only 48% of the world's people lived in autocracies. By 2020, this figure was 68%. Many factors have contributed, but war on terror has played a big part in this shift. Despite this being an in-depth series, we can't cover some of the places where all of these dynamics have really made a difference, sometimes in ways that are quite subtle. In, in places like Mali or Chad in the Sahel, for example, or Tunisia, Kenya and Kyrgyzstan, they all have stories to tell about how preoccupation with fighting terrorism then displaced all other concerns over freedom. But we will have time in the next episode to look at how the war on terror impacted on politics and society in the US and other G20 countries. So please join us for that. I'm Larry Atri. And I'm Delina Gojo. Thanks for listening. This special Warpod series, Reckoning with 9-11, is brought to you by Safer World, with support from Friedrich Ebert Stiftung. It is produced by The Podcast Company. Next time on The Reckoning, bringing it all back home, we ask what were the implications of 9-11 for laws, freedoms, and ideals of Western countries? Listen, follow, and share wherever you get your podcasts. And for more reflections from guests and co-hosts on the consequences of 9-11 and where we go from here, check out their articles at justsecurity.org, produced in cooperation with Safer World. 